You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to another episode of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And, I mean, what do I have to say about this week's show? Just wow. Um, this week's guest was Jaflo, a.k.a. Flo Larkai, former GB Senior International, 12-year pro, just recently uh, retired, actually, uh, last uh, year, year before, last, last season, uh, season before last, uh, he'd stopped, he stopped playing. So it's, it's quite fresh for him. Um, and, you know, something I really respect and appreciate is when people come into these interviews and are open and show vulnerability. Um, and that's exactly what Flo did uh, throughout this whole almost two-hour conversation. Um, he really opened up about various different things that he's been through. And it's a lot. It's a lot, I tell you. Um, but it proved to be a super interesting. And when someone is the open and vulnerable um it does make the story just so much more captivating. And like uh, Olu Babalola, one of our recent guests, he is a great storyteller. So there was uh, so many awesome uh, nuggets in this, which I think you will really, uh, really enjoy. You know, Flo had a great career, uh, which, which he spent the pr- predominant, pr- sorry, the majority of his time in Japan. Won six, seven titles there um, over a six, seven-year career in Japan. Obviously, played in other places as well, but Japan was where he spent most of his time. Um, and we really went into that as well as. His college, his college career, and, and obviously his early years coming up, and of course what he's been doing since he's retired. Uh, he's actually he was a Milwaukee Bucks scout, which was kept very low key. Um, but we kind of went into all of that side of things to, to open up the interview as well. So yeah, really enjoyable conversation, uh, which I think you will get a lot of value from. Um, so definitely let me let me know what you think. As always, before we get into the show, please take two seconds to check out our Patreon account. There will be a link uh, that you can click somewhere up above, um, and there you can start to give us a monthly or annual contribution of. A as much or as little as you would like that helps us do the work that we're doing not asking for a lot of money but it goes a long way in helping us grow this british basketball media landscape thing so please go and check it out uh, patreon.com forward slash hoops fix as always if you're watching on youtube let me know what you think in the comments what do you think about what flo had to say uh, some of the stories that he shared uh, if you want to reach out to me on any single social media platform it's at hoops fix um, or if you prefer one-on-one interaction you can drop me an email sam at hoops Anyway, uh, that is enough from me. Uh, here's this week's show uh, with Flo Larkai. Flo, welcome to the show. I appreciate you having me, Sam. Do you know what? It's, it's been such a long time coming because I actually yeah. launched this podcast in 2013 and I remember at some point in those early years, I got Duncan to reach out to you because I think at that yeah. point you were playing in Japan and I was like, you're someone that I really want to speak to because of course like Japan is just such an out there place compared to where most people you would consider having a professional career. Um, mm-hmm. And he said, Duncan spoke to you, you said you were up for it, we were going to do it, and then it just never ended up happening. And so here we are, however many years later, six, seven years later, <laughs> um, finally getting it done. But it means we've got even even yeah. more to talk about. So um, yeah. obviously, you, you recently kind of stepped away from the game. Uh, yeah. How, how has that transition been to, to sort of your, your playing retirement and kind of what have you been doing? Um, how's it been? It's been, you know what, it would have been a little a little bit easier if not for um, COVID and stuff because I actually it transitioned like pretty well so for the last couple of years which is the reason why I moved back to England I, I was like trying to set myself up for what I was going to do post-career because this time I was like 35, 36 I had four knee surgeries and you know a bunch of other surgeries so I was like yo I can't play this forever even people are like oh man you can still play you can still play I'm like, yeah, I had a conversation with my left and my right knee, and they both said, you need to relax real soon. 
So I remember, um, I forget what year it was exactly, but I had a conversation with Duncan, and Duncan was telling me about stuff that was going on at UEL. And also I had a, a great conversation with Sergio Barker's trainer. And as I said, I wanted to get into coaching. And he said, um, to have a leg up in the game, you've got to be able to, like, if you can coach guys on the floor and then in the weight room, that's a passion of yours, you can have a leg up when it comes to coaching. And then Duncan hit me up randomly. He's like, yo, you yelled as the sports and exercise science master's degree. You can play for the London Lions and the Union. I was like, oh, great idea. So I said, you know what? That's my two-year plan. I'm going to come home, worked it out with Vince, worked it out with the university, and I was doing that, which is why I was home playing with the Lions. And then it came to the end of year two. Um, I was going to play one more year, in fact, you know, because Lloyd got the, the head coaching job with the City Royals. That was good to go. That was going to be my exit year. You know what I mean? Because this year, I was like, you know what? It's my final year. Um, I've, I've rarely shot threes. I'm jacking from three. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm going to go out with a bag. You know what I mean? That's what I was in my head, I was saying that. But I remember, I never signed my contract just yet. Um, but I was still practicing with them. And the day I handed in my dissertation, I went to practice. And I was supposed to sign a contract with them. And Lloyd was like, after practice, just wait for me. I will sign it. I was like, cool. But he had to shoot off himself. So I never got to sign it. I got home. Like a couple hours later, I got a call from Milwaukee Bucks. Because I had been talking to them for a bit. And they offered me a scouting position. And I was like, when? It's like, well, we want you to start like as soon as possible. I was like, oh, I was like, that's great. I just finished my master's. Um, I can play one more year. And I was like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. It's a huge conflict of interest. You can't play for someone else and scout for us um, so we can get fine heavily. And I was like, what does that mean? Well, I, at that point, I, was like, I had to make a choice. Do I want to play one more year or start year one of career number two? So they sent the contract and I literally, I, I didn't sign it for like two weeks because I had to reconcile all that time I'd put into playing and then to get my mind away from playing um, because I knew that if I signed it, that was me saying goodbye to basketball forever, for playing basketball forever. But I mean, I you know, deliberated with myself and some of my, of my friends and made that decision and Boom, I, I jumped on board as an international scout. As you know, you helped me out with a couple guys as well. But um, it was going well. You know, like my, my role was to scout for players in Africa and from the diaspora. So that was fine. Like I went to Cameroon. I had trips planned because my, my large role was supposed to be scouting the new BAL league that was going to start. So everything was planned. Like I, you know, I've been to Cameroon for qualifiers. I went to Paris to meet with the, my team and the GM and the coaches, you know, just get acclimated with the rest of the scouts. And then I had trips planned to Senegal and Rwanda and South Africa and all that stuff. And then I think not even a week before I left, that's when I got the, the message that uh, the BAL was being postponed. I was like, oh, well, wait, what? And then later on, the NBA was postponed. And then this one, I was like, Damn, what's going on? You know, travels, all travel plans were done. And, um, but I was still scouting, you know, because, you know, a, lot, a large part of it was just watching film and breaking down film. So, you know, if you see the guys at the Bucks drafted just recently, I, I was part of that. And I was like, thankful. I remember I was being on these, we was on these Zoom and Skype calls 
and I'm listening to guys who've got years of experience scouting and I'm over there and I'm giving them my two cents after breaking down film with them. And, you know, it was like, for me, it was like some, sometimes it was surreal because we talk like twice a week for at least an hour or something. And I'm just listening like, yeah, yeah I'm actually on this call. Like, your flow. what do you think about, you know, what's got strengths, weaknesses? You know, a couple of times I conducted my own interviews. Like I had to call some college coaches and stuff like that. So, for me, everything was, man, it was, it was great. And then, but then, you know, the draft kept getting pushed back. And as the draft kept getting pushed back, the uncertainty of the league was, you know, this was before the bubble. The uncertainty of the league was there. Then the uncertainty of other leagues across the globe was there, especially with Bow. And then they start making some cuts and stuff. And then, you know, I was like, okay, now I'm cool. There's my flow, you're good. Don't worry about it. da 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 but then um, I got a call from the assistant GM and the head um, of international scouting. And they told me, like, listen, because we're making all these cuts and stuff, um, you and a few of the other international scouts, we're going to put your contract on hold. Like, you know, we want you on board. You know, when things pick up, you're going to be back on board. So our contract was put on hold, which is, you know, right now. And they've been in touch frequently at least like twice a month i still you know still contact me like even when i was in um rwanda for the afro afro basket so our first game was going to be against nigeria and i was a assistant coach with south sudanese national team so we we're going to play nigeria so you know one, one of the president of federation alex Nwara, we you know we drafted his son you know so they said your flow you reach out to him so i reached out to him like yo i'm one of the scouts that help to get your son on board and then he's like yo if you need anything my connect is there da, da, da. so like you know i'm still involved with it it's just you know unfortunately because of what happened but you know it's just the it's the way that the world is right now but you know you gotta you gotta adapt so you know i've been coaching um coaching at the university i graduated from uriel which has been great up until recently you know tier three tier four um still involved with the um South Sudanese national team. Hopefully, I should be out with them in February in Mali, and then um, for the major one in uh, Rwanda in August. So I'm still involved with, with basketball heavy. And then, you know, when we return to some level of I don't know normality where we can travel a little freely and fans are allowed to you know come to games and support, then things will pick up. You know, again from there, and career number two can take off properly. Are you feeling confident that, that your contract will be will recontinue as soon as things do pick up? Like, is that kind of like what Milwaukee uh, is saying? I I was, I won't lie, I was nervous for, before it happened, I was nervous for at least a, a couple months because I'm like, yo, there's no way, like, because I'm the new guy, like, they're going to retain me, da, 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 da. But because they've been, because they reach out personally, like, the, the head of international scouting, like, he reaches out religiously, you know, like he's just he's just a good guy all the way all the way around. So I, in that sense, I feel confident about it. You know, it, they because they could have said, "Listen, we're, we're done, we're dissolved." Da, 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 da. They could have said that, but they didn't. They they were adamant that, you know, both of them on that phone call that time was like, "Yo, we, we want you back on board." So, how does a role uh, as a scout with an NBA team even happen? Like, you know, you you you've 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 obviously gone through your your professional career. Um, played in, in various places 
from England, you know, clearly you've got to have some type of relationships for them to know about you in the first place. Uh, yeah. You know, how, how did the actual role, uh, how did they find out about you? How did the role first get offered you? Well, well, a lot of it started with my involvement with their region. So I was going to Africa since 2015. I did a camp with Chris Bosch in Ghana, where I'm from. Then I was going to South Africa with Basketball Without Borders, doing stuff. A lot of that stuff was involved with Luau Pops, um, Ben Bonsu. So we was going there every year religiously. And what I learned from the NBA guys was that you, know, you, you have to be around. You have to be a familiar face. So I was going to the NBA office in London. I knew some guys there. We would talk. And when some of the other reps from different countries would come in, we would have discussions. And they'd always ask me, like, yo, Flo, what do you want to do? Do you want to work on the office side? Do you want to work on the team side? Because I, I didn't know. I was still in player mode. And it's, it's very difficult to break from player mode and to find something that's going to, I don't know, give you the thrill or the excitement that play, like playing did. And so what happened with the, with the scouting one exactly was this. So remember Lou, Lawal came back last year, as he always does, and we were hanging out like all week. Then we were just talking about future plans and then expanding in Africa. Because, you know, if, if, you, if you ever get to talk to him, his love for the continent and what he's going to be doing on there. Like he's already doing stuff, but he's going to do way more. Like it's incredible. And I saw so much when I was in South Sudan and the respect he gets and the move that he's going to be making is incredible. But we were talking about that and I have a passion for that too. And he was like, yeah, someone, uh, one of my guys um, works for the Bucks. They're looking to expand, you know, all the teams looking to expand to Africa and stuff. Maybe, you know, you could be up for the role. This was like the beginning of the summer. And I was like, yeah, yeah, maybe yeah, I could, but I still was coach, coach, coach in my mind. Um, then fast forward to like end of July, went to went to Senegal, and I still wasn't sure um, what I wanted to do. This was for basketball without borders, and everyone's there. You know, I'm talking to people from the Raptors, Mavericks, Bucks. Everyone was there, Lakers, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm thinking maybe I want to get into coaching because I went there specifically to coach. Um, for for the seed project that was there, and then I spoke to uh, a good friend that I made out there, and she worked for the Raptors, and her her role was like kind of like working in every kind of like facet of the Raptors, and then I was just asking like yo which which kind of department has like the most growth and all this kind of stuff, and she's like from what I've seen, you know, a lot of us do a scouting, I mean, look at look at Masai, look at Amadou, and I was like. Yeah, you're right. So, you know, I'm there. So I know Amadou, president of Basketball Africa. I go talk to him. I have conversations with Masai. You know, I talk to Pops because Pops started off as a scout. Then I spoke to some of my other guys. Luca Desta is a scout for the Lakers and Dechi's a scout for the Nuggets. So I'm all talking to these guys about scouting. You know, not knowing if anybody would put me off the scout, but I said, you know, this is what I want to do. And I, was, I had a great conversation with with uh, the late BJ who passed away a few months ago. He was a scout for the Rockets. And then we had a great conversation, I remember, and then about why I would want to scout and what it would mean to me. Because my whole thing was, I want to shed the light on people so they get an opportunity to realize their dreams playing pro. That's what I really wanted to do. And then he just gave me sort of like great advice. And I think I remember the next day, the um, tournament was going to happen in Senegal. So, you know, with, with no team or no job in, in sight, I just took out my notepad 
and I sat with the scouts and I just started scouting whatever players were there. Okay, number 99, he does this, does that. I'll go talk to his trainer afterwards. So I just did it myself anyway. Then when I came home, um, like a week later, I got a, a phone call um, from the box. And then, it, lo and behold, it, it turned out to be like a phone like job interview right on the phone. I didn't know. And I was like, oh, listen, I, I got some sample scout reports you want to see. So um, I rushed home, fleshed out all of the um, reports I did, sent it to them. And like over a month, we were like talking back and forth. And I was talking to the guys at different levels um, in the scouting department. And I had to like, it was crazy. It wasn't just like, you don't just get it because they did their background on me. So some stuff we're going to get into later, they knew. They knew everything because obviously if you're going to come into the organization, they got to do their due diligence, you know. So we were having conversations about you know, the contacts I would know in Africa, what countries I would go to, how easy it would be for me to get there, visas I need to get, um, plan of attack, what tournaments, what players. Like I was doing all these things and I was just fleshing it out and the role just, it just seemed more and more feasible to me. But all this time I'm still doing my dissertation. So my mind is a bit... I'm there, I'm having cluster headaches like crazy and I'm over here. And then, as I said, when I the day I handed in my dissertation, they didn't know. It was the same day that they said, you know, come on board. And yeah, That's a, that's that's a very, happened. very smooth transition into retirement. Man. <laughs> very smooth. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you talk about scouting players, like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm obviously, I'm aware you're early in your journey, but, but you, know, you know, you're at a point where you've now been around you know, various different scouts from various different NBA organizations. You've had these conversations. You've seen players that have gone to the NBA. Mm-hmm. When you talk about kind of the, what you're looking for, like what, what are the key things that you think make, you know, a great player or a, or a potential future great player? What do you think those things are? And I guess mm-hmm. on the same basis, what, what are the big red flags? Well, the flags, right? Obviously, there's temperament on the court. But what, during this draft process... I didn't understand the importance of um, what, what other people say about the player. So that their, their coaches, their um, trainers, their teachers. Because I'm not going to say the guy's name, but there's a guy that we had high on our list, but then we found out something from his trainer. Like, no, he, he always comes late to the morning sessions, doesn't put an effort, red flag. Or... Another one which is crazy is age. So we were talking about guys, and if a guy was like 21 or 22, that's like old. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, what? Like 20, you know, 22 year old junior, 22 year old senior. Like, the, obviously, the younger they are, you know, the better for development. So that was a large part. Um, obviously, when it comes to the skill set, you know, you know, how adept are they at their level? You know, if, you, if your guard, what's your vision like? What's your speed like? What's your what's your strength? Your ability to absorb and take contact? What's your shooting mechanics like? Because there's, you know, we got some good trainers on the team that can really tweak your tweak your mechanics and stuff. So we see like, does this person need a lot of work? Um, is he someone that we would have to always have to like push to get into the gym? Would he mesh well with the existing players that we have? Um, it was a little it was a little more difficult for us at the time because our pick wasn't till late in the first, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, everyone knows, like, the first 10 players, it's pretty easy who you want to pick, you know what I'm saying? 
but when you when it when you get past like 15 then it's like okay all right, all right which guys like what 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 do what do we want to take and what we're going to lose because based on that position you know and it was a big that that was why i think the drafting process was so much was so difficult cuz you're looking at guys and you're seeing like certain things like okay i like this guy but this guy, the way he shoots, I don't, I don't like how his offhand moves to the side. Or um, do, you, do you see how um, when you know he got fouled, he reacted to the ref? Or do you see when he got subbed out, you see how his reaction on the bench? Like these, these, these small, small things, and that makes or breaks. And so I, the only thing I wasn't involved in was the, the interviews of the players that they had over Zoom. But everything else, I was there. So it's these little things. And there was a player from the UK that you, know, you already know. Um, I'm not going to say his name, but I did the report on him. It was, it was crazy. You know, like, obviously Africa is supposed to be, well, I'm in charge of. But there was like, yo, Flo, have you got any other guys? Like, you know, bring it to our attention. But this kid, I was like, I'm feeling this kid at the, at the tournament. And you know the tournament, you know? Yeah. And so I, I wrote, the, I remember I wrote the report on him. And obviously, like, you know, he has improvement. You know, obviously there was size, weight speed, athleticism, but there's certain things you can't teach, like the dog in him, that you couldn't teach, that you can, or we can work with that, you know what I'm saying? So there was like, there's little things like that, and I tell guys now, even when I was doing stuff with Den Camp, before I was scouting, I tell them like what teams look for, you know, playing pro, especially in the, in the I'm not, I've never been in the NBA, so not being in the NBA means no no guaranteed contracts you're playing year year to year they're gonna cut you so i know like the, the smallest things that will get you cut and the smaller things that can get you there example one of my boys he, he went he turned pro just before me and he played in mexico and he i think he played like two years before two years he got out of school before me he's like Flo, you know one of the reasons why they bring me back i said why he said when i dunk i yell and scream and the fans love it i was like what he said yeah try it <laughs> I like you look. It works because they get hyped over there. Because anything to the, bring the fans in, like it's, it shows a level of energy and effort. And another one, I remember a guy got cut because he had three warnings of not jumping and passing the ball. And then he turned the ball over at crucial times. Next day, he was gone. Like the smallest things about just paying attention to what the coach says because. Even though you could be like, oh, the coach, this coach, I mean, they're paying you, they're paying your check. So, you know, there's certain things. Sometimes, sometimes you have to say storm, especially depending on the level of compensation you're getting. If you're not getting paid a lot, then sometimes you can be like, man, whatever. But if they're paying you a substantial amount, you know, anything up when five figures are over a month, then you might have to just, you know, swallow your pride a bit and then address it with your agent at another time. So. Yeah. Take it. So, so before before we go into the the, the history stuff, um, just just briefly, yeah, like the last the last place I saw you pop up was with the South Sudanese national team at the uh, Afro Basket qualifiers. Yeah. Like, um, just talk. Uh, I'd be interested to hear kind of like just your take on the level of talent in Africa. Like, you know, I was actually covering um, a lot of those qualifying tournaments, FIBA Africa ones, uh, being part of them. Uh, for doing video stuff. So I saw a lot of the games and I saw a lot of South Sudanese games as well. And it's just like, just the size, the athleticism, 
it's unbelievable. Um, what would you say about the talent in Africa and like, you know, how far away do you think we are from African basketball becoming a real powerhouse? The talent is is growing because what I noticed, and I had a great conversation with um, the director of the NBA Academy in Senegal, was this. The talent will improve when the level of coaching and the training improves. And what I've seen over the last, it's recently, you know, four or five years, the coaching and training has gotten better. You know, more, more people from the outside are coming in, uh, more things online are being uh, made available. So, you know, there's not a, as much of a lag behind as far as the style of play. There's still something different. You know, like there's still, it's very inside dominant as far as the game goes, as far as like the fast pace run and gun like you see in the league, you know. But as the coaching gets better, the players are getting better and p players are being exposed to it at a younger age. So, you know, whereas before, you know, there are guys who don't get exposed until they're 18, you know, and unfortunately that sometimes it's too late for them. But, you know, I follow a lot of pages on Instagram where they're, they're getting kids six, seven years old. And, you know, from a size perspective, you know, a lot of them have an advantage and, a lot of these kids, because they understand that it's it's their way out, the level of hunger is there, which is part of the reason why I wanted to do the scouting. I, I want to try and develop it more because, you know, I, I don't want the kids over there to feel like their efforts are going, you know, uh, not being watched or, you know, the, the efforts are just, they're just doing it and it's not going to go anywhere. You know, I want to be able to like put the spotlight on them but like, yo, and even if, it, if it's not league, then it's a great high school, a great university, a pro somewhere else without being exploited because a lot of the kids get exploited, man. Like there's agents that come in and they grab these kids at 13, 14, 15 years old and they're in Estonia and in Italy, they're in Spain and France, which is great for some of them. But, you know, for a lot of them, this you know, they put them there and then, they don't flourish or develop, but the level of talent is it is improving. And as far as years go, like, don't be surprised in like you know, 10 to 15 years, probably even sooner. That you know, the guys are right there. When I say 10 to 15, 10 to 15 means the talent that's directly cultivated on, on the continent without having to leave. You know, right now, the, the best guys, you know, they leave and develop even more, you know. But I'm talking about like directly on the continent, and you know, part of this is a direct correlation with the NBA's involvement, um, and with other leagues' involvement. You know, finding talent because, you know, I, don't, I forget how many, how many Nigerian Nigerian players or players of Nigerian descent get to league. Maybe like eight players. I think in this, in this year's draw, and there's a there's a whole bunch. Every time I go over there, I'm looking like. Damn, like, all, all they need is just a little bit, and it's the coaching. Because the, the, like, it's nothing to do with effort or sometimes not even skill. It's just a little bit of coaching so they get the nuances of the game. Because unfortunately, there's still a stigma with African players. And I, I, even I got it, even though I was born in England and everything, with my name, my agent used to tell me, oh, because of your name, they'll think that you just want these regular African players that just is athletic and dunk and doesn't know the game. Like, he, tell, he told me this flat out. He didn't so try to encourage you to change your name. I mean, what would I change it to? <laughs> I, I kind of like Jaff Blow, like, nah. Yeah, of course. But what I'm saying is that there wasn't a conversation yeah. about, like, you should change your name because it will give you better jobs or whatever. Nah, he, what he did was, it was the, 
emphasis on being from England and being raised in England and going to school in the States. Like, that was his thing. This is my first agent. I find him, though, but this is my first <laughs> agent. Sounds like the right decision. Yeah, yeah. So there's that, but we're not, we're not too far away, especially with the players that you see. Yeah. All it takes is that little bit of extra training and coaching and these guys are going to flourish. You talk about that hunger uh, that you see with the younger yeah. generation there. Um, you know, you've been involved with Dan Camp for, for a number of years. You see the, see the young, you know, the top 50 sort of young English guy, British guys um, coming through. How would you compare the mentality between the two? <laughs> um, Give us the truth. Give us the truth. Don't hold back. Yeah, there's a, there's a slight difference. Um, so, when we do the Den Camp South Sudanese players, I notice a little more hunger, passion, because of where, because some of them, especially when they came straight from South Sudan, or they came from another country in transit, but to get there, they understand what it is. You know, they weren't given anything, so this is a huge opportunity. You know, some of the some of the guys in the UK, there's a few that are super hungry, and you can tell. But there's a few that they've been the man for so long that they've been spoofed. Like, oh yeah, you do, it's just another thing for them. Like, eh, I can do that, yeah. But I've noticed that. But then there, there are a few, as I said, there are outliers in both where it doesn't matter where you come from, you know. And one of those kids, you know, I, I tell you again, the guy did the reporter, you know, he, you know, I, I don't know, I didn't know his complete background before I did my report on him, but he didn't come out like that. You know, he 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 didn't talk smack. He didn't. He played with a chip on his shoulder as he could, and he was receptive and he was hungry. And there's a few other guys like that, but there's some. You know, we've had to address it at Den Camp, and I'll say it, that. You know, sometimes you be like, "Yo, it's some people's lack of effort. Like, this isn't. You know, you're pri- it's a privilege to be considered in the top fifty. So show out. And I'm not saying that. Oh, you know. The ones we do for the South Sudanese kids are all of them from top to bottom are super um, hungry and determined and stuff. And some of them, they you know they they forget, and we have to give them a reality check too. We do that. So, but it's just something. There's, I know. I just noticed with the kids who don't come from much. There's a little extra you can tell because it's like, you know, if I don't. If I don't make it, like I've got nothing, and you can always tell. For sure, there's just there's so much more at stake, right? It's like you're trying yeah. to you're trying to create a future for yourself rather than it's just a game that you play, and otherwise yeah. life is comfortable. Um, so yeah. Anyway, let's 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 do the rewind. Let's go into the timeline. Let's take it way back um, to the early years, uh, starting with 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 your your first exposure to basketball. And I was, like I said to you before we start recording, I've listened to a few podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I heard you talk about a teacher that you saw make six swishes in a row, and that was kind of the moment that you were like, oh, I want to play this basketball thing. So can you talk yeah. about that, kind of like what made you first uh, want, to, want to pick up the game and start playing? Yeah, that was, I remember that was at um, William Morris Middle School in Pollard's Hill, teacher called Mr. Obridge. He's like the tallest um, teacher, or the tallest person in the school, in fact. He might have been like 6'5". And then we had P in class but the day before that my brother was in at the high school which is just across Tamworth Manor and then we'd always go home together but he said oh I've got a basketball game so you've got to wait for me so I went and I just waited and while he was playing this game and I was like oh, what's this this is 
like this. It just looked like fun. Then we had it in class, PE class the next day, and he was describing, you know, shooting. I said, when you, when you swish and you get the right backspin, the ball comes back to you. So that's that's what got me because he hit one and just rolled back to him. I was like, oh, hit another one and he kept rolling back to him. And I was like, what? I was like, I want to, I want to do this. And I remember like he was teaching us layups, and then uh, it was one of those those baskets where the wall is right there too. So I tried to do a layup. The ball went over the over the backboard and I crashed into the wall. Like I was a, I was a complete bum. I was like nine, ten years old, something like that. Complete bum. But there's something about it. It just uh, it got to me because around those period between like 10, 10, 12, 10 to fourteen, this one, uh, white men can't jump, came out. Loved that movie. Above the rim. Obviously, I was a big rap fan, so. That above the rims got my work ethic up, and um, hoop dreams made it real, you know that kind of stuff. And then I was watching Blue Chips, um, so I was I was exposed to these. And uh, this is when um, I think was it Pontel Pontel videos Pontel yeah legendary Pontel videos. So I, I used to watch all of those. Everything was basketball. And then we had when I got a little bit older, it was the stuff that was on Channel Four that really did it because I got exposure to it and. That's all I wanted because I was I was only a little bit taller than most. Then I had like a a, a kind of a, a growth growth spurt you could say, from from like the age of twelve to sixteen. So I, twelve years old, I was five foot seven, and then when I left high school, uh, like six five six six, um, in that four year span, and everything was everything was just basketball. I don't I don't know what it was that that grabbed me. It was just nothing else excited me. Like I played football, I did triple jump, um, I did high jump. Like I remember, I wasn't like my friends were like, you know, going a couple of dates with girls or into fashion. And I I did not care about any of that. I didn't even care like anything UK. I didn't care about. I remember, little guys used to wear straights and Adidas Galaxies or Reebok Ice. Like I remember, I was like, yo, mum. I want to get these jump mans. Can I get the answers? So what's the answer? Oh, it's Alan Iverson's shoes. I was wearing baggy clothes. because uh, I was, it was just it was hip hop, it was basketball, everything was American. I was like, I I need to get over there because that's that's what I want. When when I was 15, I said to my mom, I said, This is what I want. Like, I want to play basketball because I don't want to get to 40 years old, which I'll be next year, and not have tried. I said, I'll regret it forever. And then with tears in my eyes, I said it. Wow. And then she's like, oh, that's what you want to do, yeah. So. I heard you say um, that there's there's three versions of you, the present, the future you, and then the sort of the 15-year-old self, and that's kind of how you navigate life. It's like, what would my 15-year-old self say to me and what would my older self say to me with whatever the opportunity? So you yeah. had that going from when you were that young? Yeah. Really? It's, I just, why? I don't know Why? Because I know where my mom came from. Because me and my mom were really close. My dad left when I was five. Um, and the last time I spoke to him, I was seven. And he died when I was 25. Um, so it was before this. So, like, so I was like, well, 10 years he'd been gone. And it was just my mom. And I know my mom, I see my mom struggle with me and my brother. And I know she told me so many times about what she wanted to do when she was young. And obviously she couldn't because, you know, my grandpa died. My mum was 16 and my grandma died when I was eight. I never met any of them. 
And so she put all of her dreams on hold to take care of the family. Then she had us, and then it was just about taking care of the kids. So she never had the dreams. And then when I finally found a dream for myself, which was basketball, and you know she, you know she had the prototypical, oh, you should be an accountant, you should work in a bank, da 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 da. And I was like, yo, but mom, like, didn't you leave the country and you know sacrifice everything so that if we found our dream that we could try and live that out? And that's where we had that conversation, and that's what it was. It was just, all right, this is what I found. So the thing, I don't know why it was easy to put everything into it. When I look back on it now, it's kind of crazy, man. Like, I being, I take a ball, I, I dribble in the, I tell you the story, I, I dribble in the kitchen, like I'd watch, um, like, videos of I, AI from Grand Hill, and I'd dribble in the kitchen, and my mom would be cooking, and she'll leave the stew on the, stove just simmering and she'd be upstairs and I dribble and I lose handle of the ball and the ball would fall into the street. <laughs> I take it I wipe off the ball quick and I'll tell nobody and I just leave it cooking and stuff. And I would just do I don't know man. I was it was I would just do push ups whilst I was waiting for my shows to come on, calf raises, wall sits. But a large part of that is what I alluded to when I said Grand Hill. And if you ever talked to Lou He'll tell you because Lou said that part of that was him meeting me and exposing him to Grant Hill. This video, Grant Hill NBA Sensation, was why he took basketball seriously. So I got the video, Grant Hill NBA Sensation, from my cousin who died of cancer. He was about three, four years older than me. And that's what he wanted um, to do. He wanted to play ball. And his younger brother gave me this video of his. So I cherished that video and I watched that video. Oh, shit. Damn. Wow. That was like, I, I was, yeah. Give me a second, Sam. Yeah, man. Bloody hell. Yeah, <laughs> I know where that came from, bro. Yeah, so my cousin, um, he, he was, was canceled into remission. And then um, we spoke, and then we were talking about him getting back to basketball. And I was saying, "Yeah, I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be better than you." Bloody hell! Wow. <laughs> I'm ready to get a tissue, bro. Um, yeah. Grab so, one. You grab one if you got one nearby. Yeah. 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 And then he, he passed away. Um, when I was like 16, I remember that's when I, I started taking it um, even more seriously. I remember, yeah, because he never got the chance to realize his dream, you know. So I remember um, I had to go to his funeral. So last time I saw him was healthy, and then next time I saw him was an open casket. And that, that crushed me, yeah. And I was like, you know, he never got the chance. So I'm 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 doing it, you know. That's why, like, if he's in college, um, I started off wearing twelve because I was born on twelve of the twelve. But then I started wearing thirty-three because Grant Hill was our favorite player. So I was wore I wore thirty-three for years because of him. Wow. Do you do you yeah. feel like that has been one of your big drivers for your career? Yeah, that was for sure. I mean, and the sad thing was, like, I know that. I put I get pushed harder, 
and I work harder because of like heartache and stuff. But it's it's tough though. I remember like my senior year of college, my dad died, right? Um, and it was he died in the uh, end of February, two thousand eight. And so we were going into March before, you know, NCAAs was going to start. And when my mum told me, like, even though we hadn't spoken in, like, 18 years, like, that a piece of me was gone. And I remember we had, it was four games we played that month, like, once a week or something. I, I lie you not, bro, I, every game I killed, the next game, like, the first game after, I had like 36. Next game, I had 29. Next game, 27. And after every game, I was in tears. Because, yeah, because of my dad. Wow. And I was, it, was, it was too much, though. So, like, I could play like that and kill, but, like, it was it, it crushed me too much. So, so how, like, how do you deal with that longer term? Um, I fit things into a bubble of joy I just lock it away you know I, I play with either anger or joy yeah I can't play with that like I, I deal with like I can deal with anger and I can deal with joy but so wherever wherever I feel I just turn it into that you know it's 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 not it's a, it's a coping mechanism I guess yeah no for sure I I always I've said this so many times where, where I think especially you know whether it's media or just fans in general you you watch basketball and you just see what's on the floor and it's so easy to forget that uh everybody's human <laughs> and yeah. uh, there's all this stuff going on behind the scenes of, of being a human being that um are drivers that are motivators that uh that's just going on that's going to affect their play and it's not just about kind of what happens on the court you know i forget you know like you remember you asked like sometimes how you just keep on going like people ask me like with the other podcasts I've had, especially with the injuries, like how do you just keep on going when the stuff that happened at my school? Like how do you just keep on going? It's just, I always just, I'm always like, I don't know, I just do. And but then think about it now, it's like probably like a bunch of suppressed feelings and stuff. It's just, it's just in there. Because something I noticed, like no matter what you're feeling, especially when it comes to sports, like, Nobody gives a damn, like, just go and perform. And I learned that playing pro. If you're hurt, who gives a F? You have to go and perform. If you're sad, who cares? Like, so that's that was part of it. So I just, you know, I take whatever I'm feeling and turn it into something else and use it. And then when I need to feel it later, I feel it later, you know. I do it. Like, when I graduated college, I remember, so I made... It was an academic world conference team, and I was the first player in like 10 or 15 years that made the all conference team. It was at the Division Two I went to, and I just graduated after all the stuff that happened in school. I came back from my ACL surgery. I came back from my meniscus surgery, and I remember the last, the last exam I had. I remember I was near the end. I handed it in, and then the teacher was like, "Well done." And I was walking back to my apartment. And I, as I started seeing my apartment, bro, I started like, you know, running fast. Now my apartment, all my teammates had left. I was on the floor and I broke down again because I'd been through so much shit just to get 
to that point. And I didn't let myself feel it. Because I just, yeah, I, so much, I was mad though. Having, these, having this conversation, it seems that you're like incredibly um, self-aware. Like, have you done work on yourself? Uh, yeah. You know, what sort of work have you done? How have you done that work to kind of become aware of, of all this other stuff going on? It's a, a, a bunch of time in solitude, man. So that, that, I wasn't always like that. Actually, I'm lying. When my dad left, I was like that. Because the story was, when I was about five, um, I was crying. And then he came to my bed and he was like, yo, why are you crying? I said, I had a dream that you were leaving. And he's like, oh, I'm not leaving. Like, uh, what, are you, what are you talking about? Da, da, da. A couple weeks later, he left. So the dream was like that. And then the stuff that happened at my school, I was by myself a lot. And just me and my thoughts, you know, obviously sometimes it can be damaging. But I had, you know, a few people around me that helped me, like, channel my thoughts. And I was just able to, like, I, like, I got to a point where I'm at, it's, it's to my detriment sometimes. Now some of my friends don't like it. They're like, yo, I'll analyze stuff too much. But I want to know what I feel, why I feel it where that feeling come from, what I think, why I think it, where the, where the thought come from, because I think everything still comes from somewhere. So I always analyze that. And then I'm, I'm that aware, because you know, I can lie to everybody if I wanted to, but I can't lie to myself. So there's that one part, like I can't lie at the end of the day to myself. So I just analyze, because I want to know, I want to understand me to the best of, my ability, and then if I understand who I am, then I can make myself better, or you know, if I find myself slipping off, I can pick myself up because I understand those little triggers and stuff. One hundred percent. I always say the most important relationship you can have with anybody is with yourself. You know, and it's it, it sounds when I was young, like my dad's a big time hippie, and you know, growing up, like all this stuff sounded so woo woo to me. But as I've gotten older, I'm just like, oh my goodness, there's so much of that was just so on point and so right. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, life is a crazy journey, man. Crazy yeah. journey. So you're playing at you're playing at school. You went to Chester yeah. Wildcats, which was your first club, right? Yeah, Chester. Uh, how, how old were you? How old were you when you, when you were playing there? Like 14, 15. 14, 15. And how, how many years did you do there? Well, I think maybe a season or half a season. Season or oh, half. Oh, sure. Season. And essentially, your your mum said it was too far away, right? Absolutely, because I was coming home at like midnight. Where were you? And you were living in Mitcham. Yeah, I was in Mitcham. So Chester, and that's like a good hour, hour and a half train, and like back then, like my area was a little more racist back then. Why? So, of, why of all the clubs did you choose Chessington? When it is far away. Yeah, one of my friends just um, introduced me to it. Okay. One of my boys that uh, I reconnected with. I don't know how he found it, but we used to go. We used to just go Chesterton. That's all it was. We, just, we used to go Chesterton and then, yeah, it just picked up from there. You know, obviously, you know, Mike was great. You know, I played with James at the time. You know, little Steve was, you know, he's too young to play with so us. So this is the Viz you're talking about, Mike Viz, James yeah, Viz. Yeah. yeah. The Viz, yeah. And I was learning, learning the flex offense. <laughs> what else? The first offense, motion offense. Um, yeah, but then, because it was too far, that's when mum told me to stop. That's when we had that conversation about, I want to try, like, I don't want to get to 40 and not try. And then the compromise was, 
you find a club that's close and I'll let you play. Then I saw my the same friend. First, he, he uh, went to Towers. You went to Towers? Hackney. Joe, Joe White, you know, who, who gave me my nickname Flo because nobody called me Flo before him. Oh, really? Basically said I wasn't good enough. Because he was comparing me, like, I went there, I'm 15 at the time. And he's like, listen, this guy, he's 16. This other guy is like this a year and a half or two years older than you. He's comparing me to Olu and S Sullivan, who just left. Listen, I just started playing basketball. Like, <laughs> you can't compare me to them. We're the same size, but like, Olu was a freak of nature. You know, Sullivan was, you know, out of this world and stuff. I was like, damn. And then he said, yo, there's another club in Brixton. So he went to Brixton, and I remember between Jabbar and Jimmy, the way they embraced me, I was like, and then all the rest of the guys, because you know, they had their different tiers, you know, they had the men's, under-19s, cadets, under-17s. And I just, it was, I was brought into the family quick. Like, I, I did a few sessions there with the cadets. This is when, you know, I was in it. Um, Loire was, so I was, what, 15? Loire was 12. And then we had a few other guys. This is all like the under 17. And then we had this, I think, World Youth Games or something in Crystal Palace, I think it was. And then Jimmy's like, I want you to play, play with my team. So I went and played with him. And I was just brought in with the family. Like Marcus Knight was was there, Lakin, Popola, um, Sam Sackler. Like all these guys, they just, they embraced me from early, bro. Like, and I just wanted to keep coming back because Jimmy made it fun to come back. He'll push you hard, but this, as much as you'll push you, like he'll love you just as much. And then I had the coach, like, you know, I know people, people don't give Jabbar enough credit. But for me, Jabbar was, can I cuss? Yeah, of course. Jabbar was fucking incredible. Like, absolutely fucking incredible. Like, he was so attentive towards, especially for the bigs, I thought this is why I loved, I fell in love with being a big man. He had so many ticks, um, tricks and tips up his sleeve and he wouldn't just pigeonhole you into playing the big. He'd be like, okay, you're playing the big, but I'm going to give you a few guard elements as well. Like, And he's one of those guys between him and Jimmy, like you wanted to play hard for, you know, so, so they're proud of you and just, or sometimes to show him up. Like, I, I wanted to play hard because um, for Jabbar, because for him to be proud of me, I wanted to play hard in front of Jimmy to show him up because Jimmy would say some stuff. It's tough to get Jimmy's approval. But once you get Jimmy's approval, oh, it's rap. Like, Jimmy said, when, I don't know if I can say it. I said it. So there's one game when I was playing at Brixton, and um, I think. It was a pick and roll between me and maybe Sean Gray or something. And then he dialed it to me. And I went up and I dunked on two people. And then um, came back down. Everyone was going crazy. Came back down. Then Sean drove and kicked again. I hit a jump shot. And they called, um, the other team called a timeout. And then everyone was going hype. And then Jimmy's like, son, he said, that was so good. I was masturbating on the side, son. So fucking good. I was like, I was, I was we were all dying. Like, but that's how that's how Jimmy spoke, and like just to get any kind of like, like he said it in weird ways, but he would be real with you, man. And that's that's one aspect I love and miss about Jimmy.
Um, but yeah, Brixton, it was, they brought me in, man. They brought me as a family, like, you know, just to backtrack real quick. So I went to the towers first. Remember like towers, they split into two. They had the North and the South. So I would already like started going to Brixton, but then the, I was thinking about maybe the towers again at Crystal Palace. And I went to this, the, um, tryout, open tryout that they had at Crystal Palace. And then, um, this is when I got called Flo. In fact, I'm over here meandering and stuff. Yeah, because there's only two of us that got picked. There might be like 60, 70 kids in my age group, and two of us got picked. And then Joe White was like, um, Flo, you know who you are. Right? And I came up. And then so I had the choice between them and Brixton. But I, like, I had a sour taste in my mouth for the towers. Like, nah, nah, I'm going to stay with this with the Brixton guys because you know they, they showed me love from early. So it was always like, when we were younger, they'd tell you, any girl from Brixton would tell you the battle we had between the towers and us, towers and us, mad battle. And I always had it like a little sour taste in my mouth. So I always wanted to come for their heads. Even even when we played at GB, because Pops played for towers, I want to come for his head too. Pops would tell you, like, we, even because I went to LaSalle, he went to GW. So we still battling. We we're battling them too, but there's always a little back and forth. But Brixton was the one, they, they, you know, they showed me love first, and that was my first real basketball, huh? How do you think Brixton cultivated that, um, you know, family feel slash loyalty? You know, I'm not sure the best way of describing it, but, you know, I do find that anyone I speak to, especially from, from that sort of era that was involved with the club, like there's a closeness, a tightness, a loyalty to the club that you just don't see with a lot of other clubs. I, I think it was partly due to this. It was even if you weren't good enough to play, they didn't turn you away, right? So obviously they had you know the 12 to 15 guys that they had for the specific teams, but if you were just not quite there yet, still come to practice, and then you still felt like you were part of it. You know, fortunately, I was, as soon as I started playing, like, I played for all three teams straight away. You know what I mean? I was 15, no, 16, so I played under 17s, under 19s, and the men's straight away. And sometimes we do it in one day. You know what I mean? We go mobily in the morning for <laughs> the cadets, kill over there, come back to the juniors uh, for the afternoon and have, you know, be a fight, and then i would be in the men's and just get like garbage minutes, but I'm still playing now. I'm there all day. But that that's what it was. They just they didn't turn you away, man. And they wanted to develop you. Now, I think a large of it was the summer camps that we had. That's what brought a lot of us together because we were always there. Um wherever we go to um BTG, I think the name of the school was, Norwood Girls School, sometimes at the rec. We would go, and that was just our thing because none of us we wanted to, none of us wanted to do anything else but play ball. So it was just, it became that you know you found people with like minds, what Brixton was, and then we just it goes from being you know cool on the court to now we're hanging out off the court. So all these guys, like when I look in, I'm in a group, in you know, a couple group it's called the Mandem group on WhatsApp, you know. These are guys that we, we've been friends with Brixton for over 20 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, and we're still, we're still cool. We go barbecue. We might go Miami together. We go Sweden together. It's something that's, it's, it created that because, you know, there was the level of inclusion from the very beginning. And then you worked your way to get the respect. And once you got the respect, you just stayed there. 
When you talk about the um, the landscape of, of, of basketball, junior basketball, that time, your sort of generation, you know, who were the key names? Who were the talents uh, that you were looking at and like, you know, like that you remember as, as sort of real standouts? My age or? Uh, around, around, like, you know, whether it was players a couple of years older that you were looking up to, players your age so that you went against. A couple of years older, obviously, we had, you know, Ajo, Ajo Deng, we had Andrew Sullivan, we had Ugana, we had the major. The major, um, um Midgley was, you know, he was my, my peer, but Midgley, um, Olu, Olu Babalola, um, these are people that are not in my team, obviously. Yeah. Um, who else? Ah, Pierre. Listen, I can't, I can't forget. Listen, them are Pierre and Ryan, because they will travel. Pierre Henry Fontaine West. and Ryan Cadogan. I could and come to Brixton and like, even though they're not from and Mansour as well, even though they weren't from South, they will come to our runs and compete, but they'll be all love afterwards. Like these guys and let me not forget Leon. Let me not forget Leon and Snoop. You know about Snoop. Leon Bernard and Snoop Burton. Yep. Yep. Those guys too. Like these so like I think Leon was one of the the few older guys that despite my level like he was up there with those guys when I was down here. He didn't care. Like he was a straight shoot with me. He was like he's more like he was like an older brother kind of energy. You know what I mean? So we don't we don't speak as much now, but when I see him, it's love all the time because people like yo, we don't flow like we do. He didn't mind me working out with him. Some of the older guys, they, they were, you know, because my J was broken and all this kind of stuff. Sometimes like you know, Jimmy gave me the nickname Lulu. Cause sometimes I play a bit soft. He's like, "Oh, Lulu's on that period again." Like you would say, you know, little stuff like that. But like he wanted a guy that he was cool. Like he was just, but he was like, you know what Liam was like back then with, with the chain and the gold tooth, and you know what I mean. Like was it was, it was it Leon that rocked up to Rough and Ready with a snake round, isn't it? I'm no, sure I've been was, told that story. Yeah, oh, no, it, it wasn't. Maybe it was Junior Miller actually. Junior Miller, he came with the snake and then put it on the. Um, <laughs> The billboard thing and dunked, dunked over it. Rough and ready. Oh my god. Rough and ready. Look, Jermaine Forbes. Sick. Jermaine Forbes. I've been chasing him a couple of weeks actually. I'm trying to get him on the podcast. Sick. He was above and beyond. There's a reason why he went to Gonzaga. I wish that his college career had that even better, but there's a reason why he went there. Because yeah. that, that, that wasn't happening for a lot of us. He's one of those people that we looked to like, damn, him and Ugana, like When you think of it now, with no YouTube and getting your film out there, you wonder like, how are these guys getting over there? Like, who was finding them? That was, it was incredible. When I think about it now. Yeah, that's that's why it's fascinating just to go into the stories and hear like, hear all the stuff about it because just like, there's just so many um yeah untold stories that you just don't even realise that uh you know even speaking to Azure and hearing Calhoun came over to Brixton and and stuff like that, you're just like that's just it's mad, um absolutely mad. So so. You were chasing. You kind of you knew in your head you wanted to go to the states, right? Yeah. yeah. That that move. You you ended up going to high school. Uh, was it prep school, yeah. or high school, high school? Prep school. Prep, prep school. school. How how did that move come about? Oh, man, I, I give credit to Lakin Popola for that. Yeah. So, uh, he Lakin was one of the guys he wanted to go too. You know, some some people say they want to go, but they don't make the efforts to go. Lakin was like actively finding ways to go. So I don't know how he got in contact with an AU coach, but he got with, with an AU coach for a Canadian select team. And then he's like, yo, there's this team. We can go out there for AU. 
I said, do you want to go? I said, hell yeah, let's go. So I remember I was working in Saber Center. So I had to like save money for the plane ticket and that. And then we told Jimmy, like, listen, Jimmy, um, we want to go to this AU tournament. You know, but it was it was coming up to playoff time. And Jimmy's show was straight. If you guys choose to go, you're off the team. All right. So you I'm left the team then. So I was off the teams. So I couldn't come to no practices. So I'd have to sneak into Brixton Rec uh, so I can still work out and all that stuff to get ready to go. Like, I was working out like crazy though, like at home. Like, all these car phrases, war sits, all this stuff, I was extra stuff I was doing. Because we all thought that if you go to America, everyone's like head and shoulders above of you. You know what I mean? So we went there and... Um, and you were how old? Like 18? 18, yeah. Yeah. I was yeah, yeah, 18. So I went out twice that year, right? So the first time I went out was for the AU tournament. It was actually funny. I remember we, one of our last games there, where me and Lakin were waiting um, to play. Like I, I, I think I'd got some some looks because I'd played well in a couple of games. Like we dunk on a few people, you always get some looks. And then one game we're in, this, I forget where we were, Massachusetts or something. And we're in one gym, and then we're looking like, yo, is that Michael? Yo, that's Michael. Lowell, isn't it? He was there. He's like, oh, sh what are you doing here? Oh, we got a game. Where's your game? This, oh, my game's here. Are oh, we playing you? All right, cool. So I, you know, we had spoken a little bit. So we played their team. So obviously he got eyes on him. And he, He's how much younger than you? Three years younger than you? Two and a half, two and a half. Two, two and a half. half, so he would have been 16. So he'd have been like in his, what, his sophomore year of high school or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. He would have just got to the States. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So we were like, we played against him, obviously he had eyes. So we came back. It didn't quite pan out. I didn't quite get the looks I wanted. But then um, Lakin was like, another opportunity. Bro, there's this um, Eastern Invitational camp. Do you want to go? Well, how much is that? <laughs> Got more hours at Saver Center, started doing some coaching, saved some more money. And then um, I went out, me and Lakin went out to that. And then I remember I went out there the first day, I just, I think I, stunk, I stunk it up or they, they just didn't see me. That's what they said. Because you have the Eastern and the Western Conference. The Western Conference is the lower division. Eastern is the higher division. And then they put me in the Western Conference the next day. And I felt so, I felt like a bum, bro. And I remember Lakeham's laughing a little bit, like, uh, and I was like, damn, I didn't pay all this money just to be here. So I, I showed out and I killed the next day in all these games. Then the very next day, they just, they got me in the morning. I was like, yo, we apologize. We scouted you wrong. Um, we're going to move you to another team. So they put me into another team. And just so happened with that team, I still was able to show out. I won most improved player at the camp. And my team won the, the uh, the Invitational Tournament. And then I got offers from Ryder and Delaware. Um, but I wanted to go um, to an Ivy League school because Uganda. I was trying to follow Uganda. But then I didn't think I was good enough to go to Division One, even though I had Division One offers. And so I said, I want to go to a prep school. And then a prep school that Lakin was looking at, it was like, you know, we got a um, scholarship for you. So I went to that prep school. So these offers that I had gotten, you know, prep school wasn't that great. I lost them all, you know, and I was only getting Division Two, Division Three offers. 
what were you thinking to turn down Division 1 offers and choose to go to prep school I instead? Think, I didn't think I was ready. Because, you know, what? Jimmy used to tell me I wasn't ready. And I used to believe it all the time. But he was saying it because, like, you have to get to a level where you believe in yourself. So I didn't believe it. I, I never had the, the balls to be like, you know what, F you like I am. I just didn't think I was ready. Because it was just like, it, it just seemed like it was too quick. Like, I went from, you know, the little guy in the local newspaper in London to, oh, now you're getting Division One scholarship. I just didn't think I was ready. You know, even though I was playing against them, it's weird. I played against guys that played in the league. When I think about it, like those guys who was at the tournament, it was weird. Um, but then I went to this prep school and then I thought I was doing it right, but I got all those offers just went by the wayside until the end of the school year, another AU tournament. Loire's team, his AU coach, he remembered me from when we played him. Um, Loire's like, yo, my friend plays in um, Connecticut. Like, we're going to be in Connecticut. Can you be on our team? So he contacts my high school coach. Uh, um, he contacts my AU coach, he contacts my high school coach, and triangulates that and gets me and Lakin onto the AU team. So obviously, I think losing his junior year, I think. And huge name, you know what I'm saying? Huge name. At this point, he would have been considered arguably the best high school player in the country, one of the best high school players in the country. Yeah. So we play, so there's all eyes there to get at the game. So me and him, me and Lou link up like we're in Brixton again. So I remember, I remember the first game we played. Um, my first bucket, I got, I got this crazy up and under. I remember, but I think one of the ones that solidified it. We was on a fast break, and then like he do one of these alley oops that like over there, and I took off like the dotted line and reached back, banged that joint, and I was like, yo, I appreciate that, bro. <laughs> like he was like, it was a Brixton connect, and then we were just. We just like it was a it was a, a, a old school Brixton connect that whole like two or three game tournament. After that, that's you know that's when Notre Dame sent letters. Delaware came back. Ryder came back. LaSalle came back. Like all these schools are like hitting me up again. And I was like, oh shoot! But when I got the Notre Dame one, I was like, oh that's big time. I was, I was like, damn, I don't know. Like, what they really on it? But then LaSalle was the one that was on it the most. Like they called one of their assistant coaches, drove like five hours just to, to watch me play um, two-on-two and do like a full-court um, individual workout just to see me. And then I was like, we want to fly you out. So, you know, I went from having nothing to you fly me out. I'm in a five-star hotel. I'm getting showed around campus. You know, you only walk into the classes and the class is already in session. So this is our new recruit. I'm over there. Hey, you know what I mean? Like, you know, <laughs> and a big guy on campus, that kind of thing. And what made the transition easy? My host was Rashid Quadri. He was oh, already. I was, was going to say that I dug up a media guide, an old media guide from the South, and, and I noticed on the roster that Rashid Quadri was on there. Just yeah, uh, he was from Brixton as well, right? Yeah, he was. At, he was at Brixton. I didn't know he was at the South until they they had said it, and I was like, oh damn, you know, he's there. Obviously, Demola back then. I was like, because we didn't. I didn't know the the name change. And I was like, oh, so he was my host and. It just it made it easier. Like you know what, this is a good transition. Like I think, I think this can run. So I made that decision to um, to go to the south. Did you take any other visits? Nah. That was it. Yeah, but here's a, here's a problem with that. As soon as I signed, the was like, "Yo, why did you sign?" I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Yo, we're about to um, someone's about to sort it out. You could have gone to St. Thomas More where Joe went, and you could have got." 
because I had one more prep year of eligibility. In my head, I'm like, ah, I don't want to do prep school again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe I should have. I could have gone to a different school, and who knows? But that's what I chose, and you know, I went with that. But I went there, and I got I got hurt my first year, so I had to redshirt. Oh, I was going to ask whether or not you ended up redshirting your first year because I, I noticed yeah. you played up for that first year. So what happened? Um, it was an ankle injury, a real bad ankle injury. I remember um, I never played with this level of physicality. So I was playing with the bigs. And so before we had the pickup game, we were just going through post-up stuff. And one of the bigs, you know, after I did a hook shot, you know, he gave me a, a chuck. And I came down and I twisted my right ankle bad. Tore some ligaments and stuff, so I was like, and this was like a month or so before preseason was supposed to start. Preseason, um, so I was doing the rehab and was getting back, and I started getting into practice again. Everything was cool, and then a week before season starts, I went up for a dunk, came down, the most pain I felt in my foot, and then I was out. I was in a boot. I was in a cast for about three months altogether, and they redshirted me. Wow. Yeah, that's why I fell in love with the weight room during that period, though. That's why I fell in love with the weight room, because we had a we had a trainer who was an um, ex-footballer, um, American football player. So I, all I could do was lift because I, I was on crutches and stuff. So I just lifted three, four times a week, because I, I got bullied um, before by these bigs, and I was like, I don't want to get bullied again. Because when I got, after my freshman year, I remember, no, going into that freshman year, there's, you know, John Harnett, rest in peace, he had these um, camps during the summertime where the best players in Philadelphia would come. Anyone from the Sixers, Temple, Nova, Penn, Drexel, anywhere would come and play, play at my school. And I got bullied by... Mark Jackson, who was the big, who was a big for the Timberwolves, and he was playing my position, but at pro, and that's what I wanted to be. And I was like, "Raw, this is who I need to be in order to not." And I was like, "I right, never getting bullied again," because he would do it, and then the other bigs, the seniors, would do it. And so I was like 200, 205 pounds, like six seven. Then you know what I mean, I'm. You know, I graduated at like two forty-five. So I put on some weight, but wow, I said, oh, I'm, not getting, I'm not getting bullied again. So that's why I went hard in the weight. I was going to say, yeah. so you're not naturally. I don't know if you listen to the Olu Babalola podcast, but he, he he was saying when he got to the states <clears throat> and he got weighed in high school, he weighed in at two ninety-six. What? Two ninety-six. <laughs> like and he'd never touched weights at that point either. It's just like one absolute genetic freak. Because I always thought that you were genetically like. Uh, naturally had a, you know a decent decent amount of strength and size, but clearly that was something that that came after your injury in college. I just had long long arms, broad shoulders, long legs. Everything else, I had to that was, I had to work for that. Packed on metabolism pack. was too high. Yeah. Yeah. So then, when it come to the your your actual first year playing, um, yeah. that was a pretty that was a pretty good season, right? You ended up starting, you know, I think it was like twenty one of twenty nine games or something like that. So you you were, yeah, you were yeah. actually playing a fair bit. Yeah. Um. So I, I wasn't starting in the beginning. I felt like a bum. I always felt like a bum because <laughs> play coming off the bench. Because you know, like here's the thing: my my class uh, they brought in six of us, right? Uh, for my fresh freshman year, we were the number two uh, recruiting class 
um, behind Carmelo and Hakeem Work and stuff. So we, there was a lot of high expectations. So everyone was like, oh, you guys are going to be great. Da, da, da. I wanted to be amongst you know those guys um, for, for my teammates. But I was like getting garbage minutes. And I, I, I couldn't hold my head up high, like playing one or two minutes a game. But I just kept working and kept working, kept working. You know, I, I had some experience from the year before from my teammate, Russell Butler, who passed away, about, you know, being a pro and going hard and stuff. But then it was one game, I think it might be the eighth game of the season against Cincinnati, at Cincinnati. And they had Jason Maxill and I forget, another one of the bigs. Jason Maxill ended up playing for Detroit Pistons, right? For many years, yeah. So our big kind of was playing a bit soft. And then coach just was like, just you know, one was playing soft. The other one was, I think, in foul trouble. And he said, "Flo, you know, he gave me a chance." And I, I remember exactly. It was defense first, and I think it was in zone. And I'm a fast forward real quick, um, just to a few weeks ago, because me and Lou had a conversation about: Have you ever known a player who's vocal on the court but plays bad? He's like, you can't think of anybody that's not vocal. He doesn't play well. So I say that to say this. I went onto the court because before I used to be nervous, but then for some reason I was vocal. I was on the court with Rashid at the same time, Rashid Quadri, and we were running zone. And we were talking like we were back on ends. Yo, bro, bro, to the corner, to the corner, step back. Like, get in there, get in there. Like, I, felt, I just felt comfortable as I was talking. And it, it didn't feel, I didn't feel nerves of the 10, 12,000 people watching and being in that stage, you know? And then... And I'm going, I'm going up against him, and I, I might have blocked Jason's shot, and I might have got one dunk, and I, you know, I think I finished the game with like ten and eight, right after not playing at all. And then the, the big man coach, who's actually the director of the NBA Academy in Senegal now, he's like, he's like, yo, did a great fucking job out there, man. You earned yourself some playing time. Like he was like, he was like a father figure to me. So anytime I got approval from him, it was dope. I just felt. I, don't know, I felt comfortable out there. So the, so the next game we had, um, I didn't start, but you know, again, our big wasn't playing as physical. The coach wanted. Second half, he started me. Boom! I came out doing the same thing. Then after that, he started me again, and I just started the remainder because I, I was I found a way to get rid of the nerves, which was to be present and to be vocal. So I would. I'd either have to engage with my teammates, uh, engage with the opposition, or even engage with the fans sometimes. Before I, I used to be like, oh, everyone's watching, like, oh my gosh. Like, if, if something about it didn't feel right until I, you know, until I got fully immersed in it. And then I was like, part of it. Then when the nerves went, I could just play. Were you, you just, surprised how comfortable that transition to college ball was? Oh, no, it took a minute. I mean, because I think the red shirt helped me and I was, you know, seeing it, you know, being on the bench and the atmosphere and all that kind of stuff. But as far as like playing, it started with, you know, in practice and then getting affirmation from the coaches and then your teammates. And then what I noticed was uh, as I was more vocal, I was doing and I wasn't thinking because, you know, when you think, you know, as I said, the gift and the curse of over-analysis. I'm in my head. So I remember some... some. I remember... Oh, man. 
was one game against Fordham we had. It was the A10 um, tournament. And I remember I, I scored the first six points of the game, right? And I wasn't thinking until I scored the six point because I remember the first I got the ball, I'm out, I got a layup. I was just playing, boom, back, I'm into it. Guard drove, he kicked it out. I wasn't thinking. I shot the ball, hit. Next one, we're doing a cut rollback series that our coach got from Maryland. Cut rollback to the foul line, face, pump fake, one dribble, dotted line. I took off. Remember, like, you know that Kobe commercial when he's in the air thinking? It felt like that. I was up in the air like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> I went up and I dunked it and I was like, yo, I just realized that I wasn't thinking. I was just present and playing. And that, that was, and then that was like the start of it. It was a freshman year. And that was the start of it of how I was able to like transition that. So sometimes like when I went to my second school, which where it really took off because I, I developed a greater skill set being with um, Rich Leary from Hoops in America. But he, when I was out of school, he developed a lot of that. So I just felt more comfortable um, with what I could do and then tuning out like less thinking and more more action because I was like my coach used to tell me he said Flo you play great defense on yourself man because I because I, I was, I'm over here thinking too much like and I learned I remember the first time I ever noticed that but it took years to really address it when I was at Brixton me, me and Luau would play men's Right? So he might be, he was 14. So, and I was 17, 18, 17. And I'd think about, oh man, there's a, there's a lane. I should cut there and get it. If I look, Lou's already cut and got the ball and shot it. Because he was just thinking, he was just doing. And I'm over here thinking. I was like, damn, how can I get to that level? Why can't I just act and act? And it took a while to do it, but I finally got there. So when I got to the college level and I'm around people that affirm positive positive things around me the transition became a lot easier sick <clears throat> um so obviously uh how much were you coming back to england during this time man um like two weeks out of the year so you were still coming back was that in the summer and like were you playing, playing back home back. and stuff or not i came back for rough and ready um just give us a quick piece on rough and ready your your, your memories of it the, the the standout standout big big bits oh man um before, I remember, first not playing, I got picked. I didn't know I was picked, so I showed up late and I was upset. Um, they didn't tell me on time. And I was just a spectator. I'm watching all my friends on the court. And I'm over there in street clothes, like, damn. This is this was the, the same year that the um, a Joe and Sullivan duel happened. That one, I was like, man, I, I, wanna, I, I want this. This is what I want. I want this. And then the next year, um, I played. It's when Lawal came back. He was a standout. Like I couldn't believe his improvement from a year. I'm like, this is what America does? I said, like, I need to get. I I need to go. Like he's only been gone for a year. What the hell? Like, this is incredible. Um, but the atmosphere, as you know, like there's there's nothing in, that we were playing and that we had that level of like fanfare or got that level of notoriety at all you know and then the only time I felt different was when I was at LaSalle and then they flew me back that's when I felt like something because people like I tell my boys like when I was in school 
I'll uh, flow either in this weekend. Oh, I'm going to London real quick. Um, tournament. I'll be back on Monday though. I mean, just something like, just something like that. When I get there, like, to to know, like, oh, this flight was paid for, and I'm there, like, yo, hey, Flo, we got your jersey ready. Did order this stuff? I'm like, man, that's. It felt like you felt like somebody, like, man, the work I'm putting in is like, yo, it's meaning something. That's what it felt like to me, and I, I wish, I wish it, you know, could come back because it really, it really helped, like, the north, south, east, west. And even though it's one London, but you know, you like little bragging rights, man. You know what I mean? We, as I said, my first year playing with GB in 2008, there was like six of us who was at, at Brixton. And we would talk smack to Midgley. We would talk smack to Pops and Drew. You know, obviously they weren't. They were part of us, but you weren't part of us. You know? we, we were still, we still talk smack. So that aspect I do miss. You know, Rough and Ready replicated a lot of that, but... It wasn't the same as Brixton. I, think, I mean, Rough and Ready. I think Rough and Ready is because when you're younger, a lot of things mean mean a little. They mean more when you're younger because it's your first time being exposed to it. So that I mean, you missed that. <laughs> For uh, real, uh, the memories people yeah. have always just—it's just crazy. It's something I wish, uh, absolutely wish I could have attended. Mm. So you had two solid years playing on the court of La Salle, and then of course you know you had your case. Um, which again, I, I know is obviously sensitive, and I, I don't want to push too hard on it. But you know, talking about sort of well, talk, share what you're willing to share. Essentially, you know, ultimately, you ended up having to leave LaSalle um, because of a situation. Which, yeah, I mean, when I when I think about sort of the the impact long term, where now you know, if you Google your name, it comes up. It's something that we're now talking about on a podcast twenty years later, when it you know never even went to trial. Um, I think it's seriously damaging. You know, it's it's, it's not fair in many ways. But but yeah, I'd, I'd just. Just kind of yeah, love to hear sort of your thoughts on 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 that whole situation and ultimately what what led your departure from the south. Yeah, um, well, see, you know, the end result it, did it hurt my earning potential? Yes, because there were teams that are not willing to touch you. You know, when I first played pro in Spain, you know, I didn't understand Spanish, but I Google Translate. So when I read the message boards and the things that some people were saying, you know, even though as you said, even though it didn't make it to trial, you know, media loves to put out the negativity, but they don't put out the corrective message. You know, there's only a couple outlets that put out the corrective message. So there's one guy like, you know, despite what people think of him, Stephen A. Smith, right? I never met him personally, but he wrote a a great piece about me and my teammates, you know, about how we were wrongly done and there was no recourse for us. This is when he used to write for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Just maybe like 2005 or six or something like that. So ever since I've always liked Stephen A. Smith, but back then it was just you know you're a black male athlete, you know, automatically you know guilty until proven innocent. You know that's what it was. Um, my school wanted to separate themselves from me and my teammates quickly. It, it, it looked bad because the way that you know. The accuser uh, portrayed it was like, you know, they were coerced into not saying nothing, or shackled into not saying nothing. But it wasn't the case. You know, a lot of people were there to help, and things was were supposed to be settled. Um, but then a second incident happened with my teammates, and that's where everything came up again, which is why you know they were arrested and. 
put on. They, they, went, they went to trial one week, not guilty, all charges. But what do you get? They get kicked out of school. You know, luckily, one of them made it to the league, you know, but he made it the hard way. You know, what do I get? I, I get, you know, get kicked out of school. And is there recourse, you know, damaging? Well, I was out of school when I tore my ACL. You know what I mean? You know, I had no health insurance, facing deportation. There's a lot, a lot of stuff. That two-year period is where, like, you know, soul-searching, finding myself is where the mindset I got to understand who I am came from. You know, it didn't help athletically because I, during that period, I was preparing to go back to school, but it kept pushing back the trial dates. So I think everything happened in around September, right? September 2004, I believe, yeah. September 2004. So I'm thinking everything's going to be done by October, December. That's when the trial is, but, you know, she doesn't show up. They postpone it. You know, I can't get back into school. No one's going to touch me until it's done. I was going to go to Villanova. Um, but, you know, they were waiting for everything to get, to get done. But then, you know, you fast forward three months, then they push everything back. You know, the, the court system, they're really good at lagging the time. So I'm out of school. Because I'm out of school, I'm, you know, my student visa is up for question now. So now I'm facing deportation, but you can't deport me because, you know, the case is pending and, and the police have my passport. So I can't go nowhere. I'm training every day because it's the only thing keeping me sane. I'm staying in New Jersey on an air mattress at the office, um, apartment office of my old AU coach, you know, who I, I met through Lowell and stuff. And he's helping me, you know, he's, He's, he's been a godsend, Rich Larry, you know, that I love him to death. He helped me out more than a lot of my family members, but he gave me a place to stay, money in my pocket and a purpose. So I was coaching. That's so why I got a lot for coaching as well. So I was, when I say I was training, like I got to the point by that summer, the case was still up in the air. I had offered to go to China. You know, I must, there's a lot of money in China. I offered to go to um, top league in Italy and top league in Spain. Um, I worked out for Knicks trainer, um, Cavaliers scout. This is all in New York because I stayed in New Jersey. But nobody could make any moves because I had no passport because the police had it. And the case was still pending. So I was just, I was in complete limbo. And then um, a week, luckily, you know, Lou made it to the league by then. So he was a, a big help, especially with helping me find some better lawyers, you know, once I got the better lawyers, it, it was a wrap by then, but so like a year had passed, we get to court again, and then because we got the new lawyers and our cases were ready to finish, then they postponed it again, so now I can't go back into school, so I'm out of school for even longer, so month 12 turns to month 13 and 14. So you had a, you had I, a complete year out of school? A year and a half, oh, wow. altogether it was two years altogether two years but like it was a year of nothing but trying not to go crazy you know being apologetic to my family for putting through putting them through this um not knowing where my life was going like that was a pandemic like my friends have asked me like how you been during this pandemic time i've been through something like this i don't of like uncertainty and not knowing like take your freedom being taken i've been through that already so it's been nothing to me if i'm honest 
Um, Did you have legitimate fear that you could end up getting locked up? I had nightmares about it. To the point that it was like, because I was going through so much bad stuff, it had me questioning like my own innocence. Like, did I really? And I'm like, yo, what the fuck's the flow? No, no. Like, I had to shake. And I remember my moment of clarity came. I spoke to my mum one time. And my mum said I sounded suicidal on the phone. And I said, I, I can't be like that. You know, my mum, yeah, I can't be like that. So I just, immediate switch, you know. But then um, a week, no, three days before trial in December, December 2nd, 2005, I played in a championship game in New York. So I was in this tournament in New York at Basketball City in Chelsea Piers. And I remember I went up for a running hook, but Sam was in the air, landed, uh, not enough clearance to land, landed on my right leg, tore my ACL. Um, oh, pain galore, pain galore. But I had to stop crying because the New York Knicks cheerleaders were all there. I didn't want to look like something. <laughs> so I, like, I went and wiped, I wiped the tears quick. Um, and I remember um, I got a ride home and carried up to my apartment. This was nighttime, December 2nd. This was a Friday. And that was the lowest I'd been. Because I was like, they wanna, you know, they wanna lock me up, they wanna deport me from the country. People think I'm a criminal. And the only thing that kept me sane was basketball, and now that's taken away too. So I was at, I was at my lowest at that point. And it's just a few days I just had to like Bear with me, like, you know, whatever going to happen on Monday, Monday morning, my, you know, my mentor, Rich Leary, AU coach, he um, drove me from New Jersey to Philadelphia. We got to court. Um, the DA is late. The DA finally comes like an hour late, take my lawyers in the back. So after a year and a half and over $60,000, dollars spent, wasted, and they come out. We're gonna, you know, drop the charges. I'm like what? I'm in, and then the judge is like, you know, you, you know, you're free to go. You should smile. And then my head, I'm like, I'm on crutches. Like, yo, like smile for what? And I'm walking out of the courthouse, and I can't even outrun the news reports. They're all following me down the freaking street, asking me dumb questions, and I can't. My lawyer said, don't say anything. So I can't say anything. So. You know, obviously that that one is finally done. Then we drive from Philadelphia to New York to go see a doctor. Takes a look at my knee, confirms a torn ACL. I'm like, Jesus Christ, man! You know, and I, I call Lou like a couple of days later. He said, "Yo, what happened with the trial?" He said, "Yo, he uh, got thrown out." Yeah. So why are you not happy? I said, "Bro, I tore my ACL." He's like, "Flow." I was like, "Yeah, I know, man." This is when he was at, he's at the Bulls, so he's like, oh, I can't talk, I don't get to practice, but yeah. yeah, I just thanked him for his help he gave me. But I was like, all right, journey number two, I gotta start again. So wow. start again, I have to get back into school. So this is how, this is how it aligns. So that trip to the AU tournament with Lakin, where we played Loire's team, the AU coach, that same AU coach, I played for his team in high school, is how I got my division one offers. When I got kicked out of my Division One, 
that same AU coach, he let me stay at his place and gave me a place to work out. Was I was working out and I was playing with his AU team, one of the players, we stayed at his family house in New Jersey. His parents happened to be the team doctor for the Knicks and the team doctor for the Liberty. When I tore my ACL, we went to go see that doctor. I had no money. The doctor paid for my AAU, a ACL surgery. <laughs> Let me stay in his apartment to rehab a little bit. Paid for my rehab as well. Um, and then when I was looking for a new school, I didn't want to go to Division One again because I'd have to sit out a year. His eldest son got an assistant coaching job at Division Two school. They flew me out to take a look. They gave me the, the scholarship there. Like, it all just... The things just fit in place. It was like it was crazy. Unbelievable how how these things can just align and uh, end up working out of that. So you did. You had two more years on the court, right, at Bellamine? Yep. And how how, how was that? To three? Did you say? Two, no, two. Two, two, two. Great. Yeah. Two how was that? And how good was it to be back on the court, be back playing college ball? Like, was it easy to kind of forget everything that happened and kind of move on, or do you feel like that kind of it hung on to you a bit? Me and my coach had a lot of deep discussions. This is what I mean. We don't talk that much now. But me and Coach Davenport, we got to a level of like, it wasn't just player-coach, it was man-to-man -man because let me think. He, called, he pulled me up one time. He said, yeah, what's wrong with you? Because I'd walk around campus, headphones, hood, this. So I didn't want to get attached to nobody. I didn't want to get involved with anybody because I didn't trust people. I didn't trust I didn't trust women at the time because um, I didn't trust um, organizations at the time because of how I felt my, my school did me, you know, just be like, because I'll tell you the truth, like my the athletic department at my first school, LaSalle, everybody knew what happened. I was late to individual. So I get there's like, no, flow, flow. Um, you need to go to the, see the AD. I was like, what's going on? And then he told me and I had a voicemail, voicemail from my lawyer. And I was like, damn. And then his words, I remember, he's like, mm, you may want to pack a bag for, you know, a few weeks just to, until time blows over. I said, like, go where? Like, I mean, we can find you accommodation. It costs about 1500 a month. Like, I ain't got 1500 a month for it. I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy. So I, it was always a sour taste for organizations and stuff like that. So I was just, I, I had no feelings for it. So when I got to Bellarmine, even though they brought me in and stuff, I was still a little bit like that. And the toughest thing for it was I was away from it because of that. And I wasn't the same on the court. Because, you know, these guys, especially in the preseason, I wasn't, you know, the doctor had me on a limited preseason pre schedule. I couldn't do a bunch of the conditioning because you know, don't want to overexert the knee. So these guys, when, when, we finally, when I finally was able to, to get clear to do individuals, so these guys are like killing me. I couldn't guard anybody. Latin mobility is gone. I wasn't as athletic. And then, you know, they, I tell them I wanted to play pro. They would laugh. I'm like, all right, you know. But then we had a preseason tournament. Um, then we had two preseason tournaments. I remember this one in particular. It was, we were the only Division II school playing against a bunch of Division I teams like Louisville, St. Joe's, and Ohio. And against all of their bigs, against Louisville, I don't know if I'm filming a little bit, Ohio and St. Joe's, I was just giving that work. 
And it was because I developed a skill set with Rich Leary and Hoops America. Like, they, they, he taught me all my moves, all the spin moves, the jab step, the point zero, point one, everything. And I was just, I was killing with that. And after that three-day tournament, I think, yeah, after that three-day tournament, my teammates were like, oh, so you really do want to play pro, huh? Then they started believing, you know what I mean? It was like, it started from there. And then we had another tournament around Christmas, I remember. This is when me and my coach got tight. Because I think we didn't win the tournament. And maybe he, I think he had said, it was before Christmas, sorry, Thanksgiving. And he had said something to me in his office and accused me of not caring. You know, I can get sensitive sensitive when it comes to basketball and the work I put in. Because I've been through a bunch of shit. And he accused me of not caring. And then I said, what? And I got up and I was about to walk out. And he called, he called back and he said something. And I, you know, I turned, had some tears in my eyes. I cussed him the fuck out. I said, I said, don't you ever fucking sit there and you gonna say this shit to me after the shit I've been to da, 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 all this stuff. And he couldn't say nothing because it was like I wasn't saying nothing that was I my delivery was bad. I know that, but I said it in such a way. And then I said, and then I think from then we was on the level. Like, we're seriously on the level that players would be like, yo, have you seen Coach today? Is he mad? So, man, we used to be scared of Coach for him, man. Let me talk to Coach. Yo, Coach. <laughs> like, we, we, me and him were like, we got so tight. And he would push me, too. And I loved him for that. He would push me. Oh, man. I mean, he would push the players, too. Remember, there was one Christmas we were just practicing. And then the other bigs weren't really playing physical, playing a bit soft. And he stopped practice. He's like, you, you, da, 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 da. Flo's trying to play pro. You guys are playing soft against them. You ain't never going to go pro. We don't play harder against them, da, 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 all this stuff. I was like, I appreciate that, Coach. Like, yeah. So, uh, yeah, me and Coach Davenport, we always had on a level, man, because he knew that I'll come out if he had a challenge for me. Like, Flo, this guy, they said he's better than me. They said he's this. They said he's that. Oh, really? All right. All right. So, then, so when it came to turning pro, you know, mm-hmm. Do you remember that 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 process, signing with an agent, making the decision to to sign in Spain? Like, kind of, what offers were you looking at, and how did you come to that decision? Yeah, so Spain was uh, there was two offers: it was Spain or France. Um, I think I should have chosen France. Really? Yeah, because what? Why? My agent were fired. Um, <laughs> France was for twenty grand more, but he's like, no, Spain. Uh, you know, you can raise up for the ranks a oh, lot really? better. better surely, no, be. normally the agent, but that, surely that shows long-term thinking. You would think the agent would say, take the money because he gets a bigger percentage, you know? Yeah, but I think maybe he, he might have had more ties and it was going to be better for him, better for him in the long run. But yeah, but... Um, yeah, are, you, are you willing to share time. how much that rookie contract was for? Oh, uh, that's for like 45, only 45 grand. It's pretty decent straight out of college. Yeah, 45 grand. Um... So obviously France was for 60, 60K. And I was like, oh man. I said, but 60. He said, nah, 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 nah. Um, Spain. And I was like, oh, really? I was like, all right. I didn't know. I didn't know any better. Um, but yeah, that, it all came about because, what was it? My first pro gig, well, pro was Team GB. As soon as I was done, I just I got the emails from, um, Ron, Ron Motila, yeah, and um, Chris, Chris Finch, like they they emailed me like, 
And I was like, I didn't even know they knew about me. You know I mean, I didn't know. I was like, oh, wow, all right. They would invite me to camp. I was like, oh, shoot, all right, yeah, 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 I'll come. And then I was nervous. I remember, like, I didn't think I was going to make it. Um, but it was like, I was amongst all my peers. And I was like, man, this is like, I wish I could do this like all the time. Just, you know, Had you represented all... the national team at junior level at all? No. Never? That was your first call-up? Yeah. Straight oh, wow. men's. Yeah, man. This is when, so I love to see him now. My young boy, Ryan Richards. <laughs> He's young, six, what, 16, I think he was at the time, or 17, young. He was like... He was Ryan a camp? Was, yeah. I never realised he, realize he went into a GB camp at that, that, that age. Yeah. Because he was playing for um, Finch's team in um in Belgium. Yeah, wow. so he was playing with them. So was there, young him, young um, so Pops was there, Lou was there, uh, a lot of guys was there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I made the team. You had your debut. You had your debut against Belgium. You scored six points. Oh, you see, look at you. <laughs> I remember. You know what? I remember. I was so shocked when um he said um I, I started. I think, yeah, I think it was that one. And I was like, damn, me. I was like, oh, shoot, all right. I, thought I started, no, I didn't start with him. Because Andrew Betts, was, his back was still bothering him. I appreciate that, Andrew. Yeah, get that start. Um, but that was, that was a campaign. Ended short, though, um, but no problem. But then I went off to, came back a week early, you know, spent time with mum. Then went off to Spain. Um... And that was, if I'm honest with you, I, I, off the court was fantastic. On the court was up and down. People ask me, like, why? Like, at the end of the day, I put it like this. The big guy who started over me, I still remember it. He's still built. He started over me. He played, I averaged about 13 minutes a game. He averaged about 26 minutes. He, he averaged one point and two rebounds more than me in double my minutes. So I don't. I, it's not justified to me that we're playing it. So I had a sour taste in my mouth about even playing in Spain. That's when the recession hit, and I had to, I offered to go gold, lead gold. So I was in silver, but the money was the same. So I'm not going back for the same money. But the same, no. Then I'd offered to go France. So I said I was going to take that, and then I signed to go to France. The day I was leaving. Uh, Tony G, Tony Garvalotto called, and me and Tony were called from GB, GB camp. He's like, listen, wherever they pay you there, we'll match that, just come play for me. I was like, yeah? All right, then. <laughs> so I called up the French agent. I'm sorry, I had to reimburse him the Eurostar ticket money. He was pissed, obviously. But I said, listen, I'm happy to stay home. So I went up to, um, to Everton, but then we lost our major sponsor, and that's when... Everybody's salary got cut in half, so it was a bad mistake. I broke my hand, so I couldn't go elsewhere. Then when I finally got healthy, this is when another agent that I knew contacted me and then told me about Japan. And that's how Japan started. So I, met, I left in February, went to Japan, and Japan was... Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. just quickly before we get into Japan. Um, so, yeah, your, your season at the BBL was 2009-2010. And, uh, yeah. yeah, it was funny. I, I watched your highlight reel from, from your time with the Tigers. Um, yeah. it's on YouTube so people people can search yeah. it and I mean it's amazing to me 
the people that say that the BBL hasn't progressed in any type of way, when you look back at that compared to what it looks now in terms of the game day presentation and, and just the professionalism um, externally facing anyway, it's definitely mm-hmm. taken massive strides forward. I mean, you weren't even playing. You didn't even have your name on the back of your jersey. Like None of you guys had the name on the back of your jersey. It was just all numbers and it was in ledger centers and it just looked terrible. Um, but yeah, so so Japan... You know, yeah. ultimately, that was where you ended up, I guess, finding your niche. And you spent, you know, oh, like, what, six, seven years, I think, pretty much of your career, you know, won multiple yeah. championships. Kind of, let's just talk about that transition, going from Spain, America, England, to Japan. Culturally, I would guess, is quite a big shock. What what was that transition like, and, and how did you find it? Honestly, um, it's just the language that was the toughest you know, but everything else was just, well, it's actually two things. The language and the lack of diversity, it was always tough because it's just, it's just them. It's just a sea of them and then I'm the big black guy, still kind of like a sore thumb. You know, if it wasn't for my teammates, thank God for them. Like we had nobody really because we can't really talk to people. I didn't understand um, Japanese. I couldn't read kanji or katakana. I didn't know none of that. I remember, my first team, I played for two seasons, won two championships there, was in an area called Toyakawa. And there's some, a lot, few Brazilians and Mexicans there, uh, especially in Maguire, it's not too far, like an hour drive. So I remember the first time I had a proper conversation with someone, because I'd been in Spain, I knew Spanish, I saw a Mexican family at a grocery store, and I was actually talking. I was like, man, this is the first time I can talk to somebody. <laughs> I'm in Japan speaking Spanish to like some Mexicans. All right, cool. This is cool, yeah. But it was... It was difficult, but the thing which was, I understood why I was there, right? So I was told I was going to fail, you know, um, by the same guy that told me to leave France and play for him, right? He said it in the papers and we spoke about it, but, you know, he's been, we, we spoke about it, it has to out, we're good, we're good. But that article that was in the paper, I used that as fuel. I was like, I'm not coming back a failure. Like, I'm making this work. If an agent says, oh, if I go to Japan, I'll be stuck over in Asia, so what? I'll make it work. If you think I'm leaving Europe and I'm not gonna, and I'm gonna fail in Asia and I'm gonna come back to a lower level in Europe, watch, I'm gonna make it work. So fortunately, my team, because there was nothing to do, we played Saturday and Sunday, right? And so we couldn't, there's no clubbing, no nothing like that. If you wanna go to a club, it's an hour drive to Nagoya, an hour drive back after back to back. Who wants to do that? Nobody. The the court was literally a fifteen minute walk, whatever, ten minute walk. So we were there all the time. We were one of the few few teams that had our own dedicated practice facility with a spa next door. So when I say we was in the gym like crazy, there was a reason why my team like. For two years, we set the record for most wins in the season and why we won back-to-back, because that's all we did. Court, weight room, spa, court, weight room, spa, like six days a week, five days a week. And so there was there was no time to do anything else. But I wanted to do anything, I'll just I'll hop on Skype. I'll talk to somebody here. You know, I think my BBM might have worked back then. I remember. This is just 2010, isn't it? So... You know, it was cool because, you know, the time when I was for basketball, none of my friends were awake. 
So like before practice, my American friends were awake as nighttime. So I might talk to them before practice. During the day was when we did basketball in the early evening. So it didn't matter. When I got home in the evening, my UK friends and stuff was awake. So I, I was talking to them then. So it, it balanced out as far as time-wise. It wasn't good for sleep-wise because people want to keep rock to two, three, four in the morning. I was like, yeah, I got practice. But, you know, in that aspect, it was great until I went to um, my other team. The next team I went to, Okinawa, which I played for two years and won one championship there. Now that took the best of, it took the best of the basketball stuff and outside of ball, because this was like, I think it was the first time I felt like a pro. Because, you know, you see your, your billboard, your posters, you go to the grocery store, your, your picture's there, people asking for your autograph and a picture, and you got real fans and, you know, a real fan base of like, there's only like five, 6,000 people in the, in the, the arena, but it was always packed. Loud as hell. Felt like a a really good D two or small D one school. Like loud like that. Imagine how um, Duke was, like the camera, like in that small Coach K court. Like it was that kind of vibe in the arena, and we were the number one sport, you know, on the island in Okinawa. You know, even we go to the military base. You know, all the Americans they knew who we were and. They were fans. They'll come to the game too. Like so, it was, it was love. You go to the clubs and know, oh yeah, Kings, Okinawa, come, come, come. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was just, it was love, man. Which was, did, then, did you know that you were going to be in Japan long term when you first went there? No. Nah. Really? What was so, your original plan? Were you thinking get some numbers, get some stats, potentially come back to a high level in Europe? Yeah, I thought that, but then when I came in, I came in with. I had the murder, death, kill mindset. So I was just going at anybody. Because first up, my first contract wasn't up for a lot. And I was just like, anybody that's in my position, I'm going after them. And I would use, you know how Jordan used to just think of stuff to, you know, get, I'd be like, take no. it personally. I'd be like, yo, no, these guys got fresh haircuts. All right. All right. <laughs> like, I'm serious. Like, because there's no barbershop. Like, oh, these guys got fresh lineups. Okay. Are you guys probably getting like you know over ten k a month? All right, cool, cool. Oh, 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 oh! You got your your wife and girlfriend here. All right, all right. Like just anything, I would just I would to come at them. You know what I mean? So that's what we we would <laughs> anything we would do that. And then I got to the point that I was only there for like four months, three months. The first time, as I joined at the end of the season, they'd cut like four players at my position already. And they brought me in, and coach was one of the guys that could score. So when I came in, he saw I could score. He changed the whole offense to run triangles so he can give me the ball. And then I was, I only averaged like 14, 15 points. But I was, I was averaging 14, 15 on a team where two guys averaged 20, one guy averaged 16, I averaged mine, another guy averaged about 12. I mean, so we were like getting buckets. And then we won the first. The first championship, I had 20 and 10 in a championship game. And then like a week or so, two weeks later, my team signed me. Boom. Then we won another championship. A couple weeks later, another team signed me. Like they just they just kept signing me. And the money was always decent. 
You know I, mean? I was going to say that's the other thing, right? About Asia, you know, the the money there is just different, especially since two thousand eight with the with the you know the the, the economic uh, crash. Um, what sort of money could you earn in Japan as a professional basketball player from England? Uh, it, now or then, then it varies. Then. Like, listen, then, listen. I know people that were earning as low as in USD. This is yeah. USD, as low as like. 30 grand, which is like a regular job here, yeah, to as much as you know, a quarter of a mil. I mean, so it varies. Like, if you if you were getting anywhere close to six figures, then you're straight, you're one of the, the better players. And unfortunately, I was closer, closer to there. I, I had a, a few years run with that before injuries just ruined that. But you know, it's and you weren't really spending your money, man. I was going to say when it comes to how are we doing for time by the way because I know we originally said one o'clock hard finish uh, no it's alright she can wait alright cool we won't, we won't be too long um, yeah I was going to say when it comes to uh, sort of when you're in your career managing the financial side of things like did you always have one eye on the fact that you knew this was only going to be a limited window and uh, you know you need to manage your money properly so that you're set up for when you finish or was it a case of just live in the moment make the most of it and you won't really think about that side of things you know we hear so many um, stories about all these athletes that end up ultimately going broke after earning a lot of money during their career it was both like I didn't earn as much as I because I got to a point where I thought that I had plans but then when the injury started happening then it, then it starts to drop more and more and you're not able to save as much and then the lifestyle you were living people expect you to do that so you keep up appearances so I won't lie I was I wasn't the most financially responsible person like I was in, I was in clubs I was taking trips I was I remember there was one there's only one summer that I knew that even my mum said, she goes, you're trying to waste all your money. So I had, um, there was this one team, Yokohama. I, I had a really bad knee injury. After, I had a great summer getting my body ready. And I had a really bad knee injury. And it put me into like a bad state. And then I tore my bicep. And it put me in like a state of depression. And, you know, I thought that, you know what, I'm going to do things and, whatever whatever and the money would be a pacifier for the pain i felt you know that my body is failing me because you know it's tough like when you built your body up so much and then it betrays you that's what it, that's what it felt like to me i felt like my body betrayed me and then i, I felt i might have spent like i don't know 15, close to like 15 20 grand i don't know what or just traveling just oh, i'll go boom that i'll pay for that like it's stupid Absolutely stupid. You know, luckily, like, there's enough saved that with this pandemic hit and, like, I'm cool, my mum's cool. I mean, she, my mum retired for a few years now. She's straight. My brother's cool. My niece is cool. Like, you know, I don't have hundreds and hundreds. And, uh, for, for, some reason, for some reason, people think I'm caked out because I don't ask no one for money. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't waste it anymore. I just got into investing just recently. I wish I had learned this before. Yeah. I wish. But I, I didn't know because in my head I'm like, all right, I'm making this. I'm going to spend this much and then I'm going to make this much again. I'm going to spend this much. I'm going to make this much. That's what, that's what I thought. I didn't think about, oh, wait, 
I've made this much, let me invest that much and then use this much. I didn't know about any of that. But fortunately, I think it's, it's at a point where it's not too late, fortunately. Um, so I'm still, you know, I could have, you know, if I didn't have a reality check, I could have pissed it away, if I'm honest with you. And had nothing, because I was living, I was living, man. I was li- you know, I was, but you got to live as well, right? Is it was it worth it? It's worth the memory, surely. Yeah, because I know some people like I was living and I felt guilty, but then I had a reality check. Two thousand eighteen, just before I played with the Lions. So just before I played with the Lions, and then just after the Lions, um, that first year. So the first part was. Uh, my old teammate was Saul Butler and his wife died in a car crash. So I was in some bouts of depression. I was seeing a counsellor for that because I just finished playing overseas and I was wondering what to do next and what this kind of stuff. And I felt guilty for even feeling like that. And then, you know, I, was, I think like my mind wasn't in the right place. And then, because I still think about, you know, you know, do I want to be home, school right, playing again, da 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 You know, I need to really focus on what I want to do after basketball. Like, I, my mind wasn't quite there until I found out one of my teammates that I played with in Japan, I won my first championship with, he committed suicide. You know, he only stopped playing, like, two years before that, and he committed suicide. And then I was like, I don't want to get to that point. So I, I got more serious and more intentional about what I wanted to do after basketball. And I hate that it had to come to, you know, something like that for me to do that. And I wish someone would have, like, taken me by the scruff of the neck and be like, oh, you need to really start thinking more of your future because you know, I, I fell into the trap, man. VIP, party, girls, all this stuff, trips. I fell into I fell into the trap. It was fun, though. I won't lie. It's a, it's a good trap. It's fun. I died with a smile on my face, put it that way, but I went through that and then it's like, I have to be way more responsible. I guess to come come full circle as we start looking to wrap it up, um, you know, we started speaking about, at the the beginning, speaking about sort of the three versions of you, your past, present and future self. Mm. You know, when you look at where you are now, what would you what do you think your your 15 year old self would say to you, you know, in terms of his assessment of, of how it's all panned out uh, would he be proud? Um, what would he reflect? And then, likewise, I guess your future self, when he looks back, what would he be saying to you now? My younger self, he would say two things. Number one, he would have questions like, oh, he'd probably ask three questions. Why didn't you make it to the league? Um, you're not married yet? Where are the kids at? You know, he'd probably say that. Because um, for some reason, I thought I'd be marrying her kids by the time I was 30. I don't know what I was thinking. Um, but then he'd also probably be like surprised or proud that like, yo, you went through all that? You didn't quit? Why didn't you quit? Like, damn, you still you still kept? Wow. That's crazy. Like, I think about myself, jeez. Somebody asked, why don't you quit? It's, e- it's easier. I don't know. It's easier to keep going. Quitting is difficult, man. When you put so much into it, damn. So there's that. My older self, what would he say? Thank you for not quitting. He probably said, like, yo, stop being lazy, man. Step it up a little bit more. 
so I could realize what I want sooner. That's what I'm, I'm, sometimes I meander about. I've, I've had the, the problem when I, since I was in school where it's like I've been decent at a bunch of so many different things that it's tough to get focused in one. Basketball was the first time I got focused in one. But now that basketball's done, I've got to get focused in another. I had a conversation with Lou the other day after the South Sudanese um, camp and games in uh, Rwanda. He says, man, he said, I can't wait till you take coaching seriously, man. And I was like, it hurt me like, I was like, I was on the phone, man. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that you're passionate about, but but because of the way things are now, I need something that's recession-proof. Because unless you're coaching at the elite level, you know I mean, there's a lot of guys who probably be watching this who, who don't, you're not coaching at the elite level, we're not playing at the elite level, like, they've taken it away from us. You know, I, I'm not coaching at the university right now until January. And if tier four still going, there's no coaching at all. And I know these guys, we're in a group chat. They're, they're doing their best to keep their spirits up, but it's tough. So it's finding something that can, that you can do if, well, who knows what's going to happen. Maybe the vaccine works, you know. Maybe COVID dies out by itself, who knows. For real, for real. I think that's a, that's a perfect place to wrap it up. Flo, thank you so much. We've gone two hours. It was uh, super insightful, and I really appreciate you being so open about everything. Um, I think it's going to be super interesting for people, and uh, I hope that I will see you very soon on the circuit. Oh, hey, podcast listener. Bet you weren't expecting to hear from me again. Now that you've listened to the show, please take two seconds to take your podcast player out of your pocket and give us a rating and review on iTunes. It would be massively appreciated and goes a long way in helping us spread this content far and wide. Literally take your phone out of your pocket right now. Uh, open up your podcast player. Go to the Hoops Fix podcast. You'll see the option to leave a rating and review. Drop us a five star if you love it. And uh, if you could take two seconds just to write a review as well, it would be massively, massively appreciated. Thank you and speak to you next week. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.